1: Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Mr. Larry Olmsted. He is an award-winning journalist. He's a columnist for multiple national newspapers and magazines. He is the author of the New York Times best-selling book we'll be discussing today titled Real food, fake food, why you don't know what you're eating and what you can do about it. Mr. Olmsted has spent the past four years researching this topic, a journey that has led him to Japan, Alaska, Chile, Argentina, Scotland, and so forth, all across the United States and Canada as well. Most memorably and interesting to me, he once had dinner with the late, great Julia Child. He has skied with Chef Wolfgang Puck and was guest judge on Gordon Ramsay's TV series Master Chef. He is also certified as competition barbecue judge by the Kansas City Barbecue Society. That is a big deal. And he currently writes USAToday.com's weekly Great American Bites restaurant column. Welcome, Larry.
0: Oh, thanks for having me. Pleasure.
1: I've got to just touch on the fact that you had dinner with Julia Child. What was your takeaway from that experience?
0: I was just sort of mesmerized. You know, I would be like, For uh, you know, a basketball fan to eat with Michael Jordan or something. Exactly. um, Growing up, she was the only real food icon before there was such a thing as a celebrity chef and changed the way so many people cook. And I mean, I have more cookbooks than I can fit in my house, but hers is still like the go-to bible.
1: Exactly. Well, we need to talk about your excellent book, Real Food, Fake Food. It is a topic that is near and dear to my heart and has been for many years because I really dislike seeing consumers basically ripped off or taken advantage of when it comes to something as critical as their food. And I know there are certain policies that affect what we eat. But let's dive into this. You are mostly a travel writer. And you've been recognized for your excellent travel writing. What got you interested in food?
0: Well, I mean, I've been writing on travel for well over 20 years, and a lot of different aspects of travel from Golf and skiing to cultural museums, and you know people travel for a lot of different reasons. Some people like to decompress, go lay on the beach, read a book, and some people are active. but what they all have in common is they eat you usually eat three times a day, regardless of their other motivation for travel so it it just sort of goes with the territory, and when people go to Italy or go to Japan or or something like that or go to the Caribbean they they tend to eat at least some of the the local cuisine and sort of you know it becomes part of the travel experience and for me it just I became more and more fascinated with it and in this country we've had a massive rising tide of interest in food. I mean, the the Food Network is turning 25 this year, and when they launched it, people said, oh, no no one will ever watch TV shows about food all day. So it's a a much-changed landscape, and as I dove more into it, it just became a bigger part of what I do.
1: So what was the first food that you became tipped off on that led you to believe that, wait a second, what I've been eating isn't really what I thought it was?
0: Well, there were really, there were sort of two moments that came together to be the genesis of this book. And one of them was I was visiting Parma in Italy, which is the culinary epicenter of Italy, not a place most American tourists have high on their list, like Florence or Rome, sort of like Lyon in in France. You know, you go there if you're a foodie, but you might otherwise not. And I was visiting some of the producers there, and the name Parma is part of Parmigiano Reggiano, the most famous cheese in the world, as well as Prosciutto di Parma, which comes from there, and Parmalat, the big Italian agri-giant, Barilla Pasta, the biggest pasta company in the world, all based in Parma, huge food city. And I was visiting the dairies where they make the Parmigiano Reggiano, the king of cheeses, and fascinated, you know, they have all these rules, how fresh the milk has to be, that the cows can't take any kind of drugs, the grass can't have pesticides. Very, very, very pure process that wowed me. And then the the head of the dairy or the cheesemaker said to me, you know, it's not like in your country. (laughs) And I was sort of like, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, you can sell anything there as Parmesan cheese. The rest of the world has to be this one meticulously made, basically licensed product. So that sort of made an impact because I realized what the low quality of, of this cheese that so many people in America eat. But it wasn't enough to sort of tip the meter because you can get real good Italian Parmigiano-Reggiano in this country as well as really crappy fake Parmesan. But then I went to Japan and I tried the Kobe beef, which is probably the world's most famous red meat, sort of the Rolls Royce of red meat. And it's very, very different from what we have here in the U.S. And at the time the importation of... All beef from Japan was banned in this country by the USDA, so there was no such thing as Kobe beef or any Japanese beef whatsoever legally in the United States. Yet when I came back, I saw it on menus all across the country, sometimes for like three hundred dollars a steak. And I tried it, and it wasn't just not Kobe beef; it's not Japanese beef. It's probably the same beef you to buy at the supermarket for three ninety nine a pound, being sold to you as something completely different. And that was was really what tipped me over. I was like, "Okay, this is crazy that people just are, are paying an arm and a leg for something that that's not even close to what it's supposed to be."
1: Exactly. Okay, so I want to go back to the domestic Parmesan cheese that we buy. You discovered that it contained wood pulp.
0: Well, that's only in the in the ground cheese, like you shake out of a cardboard right. canister. And it was actually um, after, or just as my book, as I was finishing up my book, Bloomberg did an investigation because they sent all this cheese to a laboratory to be tested. And cellulose, which is a naturally occurring wood fiber, a lot of the, the articles that came out called it sawdust. That's really not fair, but by the right. same token, it's not an ingredient that's supposed to be in cheese. It has nothing to do with dairy, and they added as an anti-clumping agent to keep the grated cheese from solidifying in the can, I mean, it's approved by the FDA and there's no limit to how much they can add. So they discovered that even though you only need like 1% cellulose to keep it from clumping, if they put 2 or 3 or 6% cellulose in, they could save money because it's cheaper than cheese. And so many companies did that. But to me, that's still a relatively small problem because anybody who cares about food and taste isn't going to buy graded parmesan cheese what I care about is when you go to the actual cheese case and you see a wedge of parmesan cheese in the sort of fancy case and you buy it and it's still not parmesan cheese
1: right what concerns me though is there are many populations say inner city and rural populations that don't have a cheese case they have only the stuff that comes in the can And so when I read that one national brand was more than 20% wood pulp, I thought, whoa, that is a great injustice, especially to population groups that don't have a choice. Even if they had the knowledge, they wouldn't have the choice. Do you want to identify that national brand?
0: Actually, I'm not sure which one it was because it was in, um, Bloomberg published the range of results but didn't attribute them. Oh. I think they said it was a store brand.
1: I see. Okay. Well, that's a heads up for consumers that when and if you can buy Parmesan cheese, make sure you're getting it in a wedge and not already ground for you. I think that's good advice. You also have advice in your book to read ingredients. And you describe, for example, fruit juice. Everybody has had, I think, this experience who's paid attention to the ingredient label. You know, you're going to the store, you're wanting to buy cranberry juice, maybe you want blueberry juice too. And you're finding that, oh, wait, when I read the label, I realize that it's mostly apple juice from China.
0: Yeah, or white grape juice. So those apple juice and white grape juice are basically the, to the two cheapest commodity juices. And again, if you read the ingredients, you will see that because the FDA requires that the ingredients be listed in order of volume. So the first one would be apple juice or white grape juice. But what's crazy to me is they regulate the whole label, but they choose to only pay attention to the back. So you can put on the front of that bottle of juice, you can call it blueberry-cranberry juice. And show pictures of blueberries and cranberries. And any rational person who saw that would assume that it was a juice made of blueberry and cranberry, not a juice made of apples with 1% blueberry and 1% cranberry juice in it. There was a lawsuit I described in my book where the, the palmy the juice company, which actually makes 100% pomegranate juice, and pomegranates are very expensive fruit, sued a juice company owned by Coca-Cola because they were calling it like blueberry pomegranate and it had, I don't know, half of a percent of pomegranate juice or something in it. And they actually won that case, even though the law was probably on the side of the bad juice because it was deemed so misleading. And it's crazy what often appears in the products that consumers have no idea.
1: Exactly. And the good news for consumers is that at least we have that ingredient list. As you mentioned, I don't think so many of us understand that ingredients are listed in order of predominance. So when you're buying a food and the first ingredient would be, or if you're buying a juice and the first ingredient is apple juice, regardless of the pretty pictures on the cover, go with that ingredient label. And then there's also the percent juice, which is required by FDA so that you've got Something that looks like juice that's called a juice drink, you might see that it's just 10% juice.
0: One of the things I talk about in that vein in my book is the 100% is thrown around a lot in the food industry outside of juice. Yeah. And often has no meaning. So you'll see, I use the example of hot dogs, but it's a lot of things. 100% beef hot dog. And a rational person, especially a person who had ever taken a math class, would expect that to mean the hot dog was made entirely of beef. Right? That's what 100% beef means. Right. But what, to the hot dog industry, what that means is that the beef in that hot dog is 100% beef. There's lots of other ingredients. And it's very simple. If you flip the hot dogs over and you see a laundry list of ingredients besides beef, it's clearly not 100% beef. But that's legal. And there's a lot of products like that. And then there's also, well, I think the ingredient list is a good thing and it's useful to consumers, there are ingredients that don't have to show up on there, or there's ingredients that can just be sort of obscured, like when it says, may contain natural and artificial flavors and coloring. So that's thousands of possible FDA-approved products, some of which are known to be dangerous and associated with being carcinogens and you have no idea what which ones of those products are in that and and sometimes you don't even know if they're in there at all because it says may contain one or more of the following that, to me that's not really an ingredient list
1: right or you've got a proprietary blend where you have no idea then what's really in there exactly and interestingly going towards those kinds of hidden ingredients like spice mixes, for example. You also covered the issue of spices and how they can be cut. You described turmeric, for example, that contained corn.
0: Yeah. The former commissioner of the FDA told me very simply that if there's any ingredient that's expensive and you can take something that's less expensive and the consumer can't look at it and tell the difference, someone is going to substitute that. It's going to happen across the board all the time in every food category. So the more obtuse the food is to the eye, the easier it is to adulterate. And dried spices are a perfect example. When you go and you buy a a shaker of oregano and it has lawn clippings in it, which it it does a, a surprisingly high percentage of the time, you have no idea because dried lawn clippings look like dried oregano. And I always like to use the example, if you recall a couple of years ago, there was a very high publicity story about this horse meat scandal in Europe. Yes. And they were substituting horse meat for beef, but it wasn't that people were going into a restaurant and ordering a T-bone steak and getting horse. They were buying frozen lasagna in the supermarket and getting horse, where if you took a frozen lasagna and cut it in half, quote-unquote beef lasagna, this frozen gray meat, you can't tell whether that's goat or pork or beef or camel or zebra or horse, you know, it could be anything. And when and when you get things like that, like bisques, uh, anything heavily processed, you just can't look at it and tell what it is.
1: Right. So the horse scandal happened in Europe. Do you have any reason to believe that those kinds of situations could be happening in the U.S. as well?
0: There are plenty of bad things happening in the U.S. I, I don't think that's one of them, simply because the USDA regulates meat plants more heavily than most of the rest of our food supply is regulated and over the years there have been some efforts by private industry to start processing horse meat and culturally we're sort of yeah. averse to that as Americans they do eat horse in parts of the world there's certainly no no shortage of horses i'm not passing judgment on whether or not people should eat horse or not but there have been people who have tried to get horse meat business up and running and there are no plants in the U.S. that will process it. So I don't think that that particular issue is a problem, but you know, in we have basically the equivalent in seafood every day where these species that are far unrelated to what you think you're buying is, is what you're being served when you order seafood.
1: Exactly. Larry, let me take one break. Remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Larry Olmsted. He is an award-winning journalist and the author of the book that we're talking about, Real Food, Fake Food, Why You Don't Know What You're Eating and What You Can Do About It. And what I should have said, Larry, earlier on is that I love the quote that you have right when you open your book. It says, there is nothing more fundamental than knowing what you are putting in your mouth. And that's a quote attributed to Kelsey Timmerman out of Where Am I Eating? I do want to jump into seafood because I was especially concerned about the abuses, the Slave like conditions from where much of our seafood comes from. And these were just recently exposed within the last, say, several years, at least that I've been aware of. And besides what you reveal in your book, also with regard to, oh, you think you're getting a certain type of fish when actually you're not. Tell me about your discovery about seafood fraud. What was the first experience, and what else did you learn?
0: Well, I mean, there's no one category of our food supply where fraud is more pervasive than seafood. And it's not that people in the seafood industry are evil and people in the beef industry are are wonderful. The main reason, it goes back to what I said about being able to visually identify your food. When you go and you buy chicken, you might have a choice between organic or kosher or free range, but it's a chicken and it looks like a chicken. You might pay for organic and not get it, but you can tell it's a chicken. But when it comes to seafood, there's about 500 widely commercial species in the United States and there's thousands of species in, in the ocean of which most people know basically what four or five look like, a lobster, shrimp, salmon, a Most of the fish we eat is white fish. Most white fish looks exactly the same once it's processed, and America does not have a tradition of eating whole fish the way you would have in Caribbean or Asian countries. So you go to the supermarket and you order a pound of red snapper fillets, and they can give you any white fish fillet and you won't know that it's not red snapper. And with red snapper, which is the most substituted fish, that happens more than ninety percent of the time nationwide, which was a uh, almost all the time. I read one food scientist said you could go to LA and eat out in a nice restaurant every night for a week and order red snapper and never once have it. Wow. And it's kind of crazy how pervasive this is. And then in addition to that level of just outright substitution, then a lot of the seafood we get is processed in some way. It's been chopped up. It's in biscuits, in patties. It's breaded. I like the example of fish and chips. It's just it's something that we accept as consumers. You go to a pub and there's fish and chips. But if you went out and it was meat and chips – You would question it. You would say, well, what meat is it? Right. The idea that we routinely will order something that we don't even know what it is. Is it cod? I don't know. Is it pollock? You know, it it strikes me as as sort of odd that we've become so accustomed to not knowing what kind of seafood we're eating.
1: Or not caring. We just take it for granted that somebody is looking out for our best interests. And if something is sold, I think American consumers typically think, Not only is it what the label says, but it's safe. And you go through a whole chapter titled Fishy Fish, in which you talk about your dad and how he was really into talking about sushi. And then you talk about sushi fraud in the United States. Sushi seems to be very popular, increasingly popular, even in places like the Midwest, where we we are very far from the closest coast. What do you want our listeners to know about sushi?
0: Well... Probably the number one comment I get after I do a signing or presentation or somebody who's read my book, it says, you ruined sushi for me. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I want to just take a, a step back here and say, you know, that that was not really my intent. And we jump right into a whole bunch of problems and negative things. But And it, it doesn't sound like this if you're listening, but I'm actually a, a big optimist. And, you know, I called the book Real Food, Fake Food, rather than Fake Food, Real Food. And I made a very conscientious decision on the order of the the words, because I'm trying to view the glass as half full rather than half empty. And I started, from a perspective of travel, interested in these delicious real foods, or, I mean, great seafood and great Kobe beef and great cheese and great olive oil and all these things. And what I later discovered, because I started from a perspective of taste, is that the real foods? Not only taste better, but in almost every case, they're better for you, which is just sort of a wonderful fringe benefit of them. And that's the thing with sushi. If I I love sushi personally. If I go to, to Tokyo tomorrow, I'm going to eat sushi every day. But in this country, I eat virtually no sushi anymore because I know about it now. And it is. I said that seafood is probably the largest fraud category in our food supply. Within seafood, sushi is the, by far the worst niche. Studies, they're stunning. Uh, in cities the size of New York and L.A., scientists struggle to find a single sushi restaurant that serves what it claims to on its menu.
1: Wow. Gosh, that's amazing. Well, we just have 30 minutes, and I feel like I'm jumping around this book, but I think that, true to your point about being an optimist and focusing on real food, in the conclusion of your book, you do tell us, to eat less processed food. The more processing there is, the more likely we are to find fraudulent or adulterated ingredients. But I do want to talk about olive oil because it's something that I, as a dietitian, of course, recommend olive oil. The Mediterranean diet has received all kinds of kudos. We go to the supermarket. We think we're buying a healthy oil for our family, and we pay top dollar for olive oil compared to, say, corn oil or vegetable oil. And then we find out, oh wait, this might not be a hundred percent olive oil. How do we know what we're buying?
0: Well, fortunately, the olive oil landscape has gotten slightly better even since I wrote the book. In the early research, especially if you look back at studies done, you know, ten plus years ago, the fraud rates or or mislabeling rates for olive oil, stuff being labeled extra virgin that did not qualify to meet the legal standard for extra virgin were often in the 70 plus percent range And now it's more around 50% in more recent studies, not just in the U.S., but in Europe. Because somebody, olive oil is the most frequently studied food fraud topic. So there's somebody's always doing a study on it. It shows up more in the literature of food fraud than any other product. And in this country, it's gotten the most attention. 60 Minutes did a big segment on it. Uh, There's a whole book written about it called Extra Virginity. That's really interesting. So olive oil has had sort of the light shown on it and been forced to clean up its act. And also, like a lot of other artisan food industries, I mean, olive oil is a great product. So there's people who want to passionately make it well and sell it well. And they have risen, given the opportunity of the big supermarket brands not doing as good a job. So I give a laundry list of things to look for when buying olive oil. And there's no one silver bullet other than to actually know who's making it. And, you know, when you go to Italy, you talk to a lot of people say, oh, yeah, I never buy olive oil in the store. I get it from um, from the guy down the road who presses his olives. And, and when, when I speak in this country, I always hear from Greek-Americans saying, oh, yeah, I have my relatives in Greece send me bottles of oil because I don't want to buy it here, which is very telling. <laughs> and Greeks consume more olive oil than anyone else in, in the world. So... You definitely can buy good olive oil here i I give pages and pages of tips to look for some of the very general things are if you're just buying by country, my top choices are um, Chile and Australia, which really surprise people and 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 these oils can be harder to find certainly than oils that say they're from Italy though a lot of the oils that say they're from Italy aren't actually from Italy. California is much safer than in my opinion than European oil, you know and they're more readily available now than they've ever been so there are definitely ways to buy good oil, but the, the the best thing about olive oil is once you've had really good olive oil, you just know it. You you won't you can smell it, you can taste it. And it's shocking to me how many people, especially people who consider themselves foodies, have never had really good olive oil. And I, I've done tastings. I did a tasting with a signing with a gourmet store in Ann Arbor, Michigan And the people who come to hear me talk generally are interested in food, and one after another, they say, wow, I've never tasted anything like that. But that's what olive oil is supposed to taste like.
1: Mm. Well, I do want to put a plug in, not only for your book, but for your website, realfoodfakefood.com, because you have a compilation of press articles that have taken deep dives into these kinds of topics. I specifically went to the National Consumers League because I was very interested in olive oil. And I was really surprised to see Trader Joe's organic olive oil listed as one of one of the varieties that we could trust.
0: Yeah, I mean, I personally don't shop at Trader Joe's not because of any animosity. I just don't have one anywhere near where I live. Right. And I, I know they sort of have a reputation for excelling at some products and not others. The one that I do am a little more familiar with that's sort of nationally distributed is, is Whole Foods 365 brand. Mm-hmm. And they have their, they um, they're, they're, which is sort of, ironically, it's like their lower price brand, but that particular label is made for them by a a single estate producer in in Italy, or at least was the last time I looked into it, and and is a very good oil for the money and and pretty reliable, too.
1: That's great to know. We could dive into many more topics. We just have a few minutes left, so I want to turn the ball over to you. Is there something in this book or something that you want our listeners to know that I have failed to bring forth?
0: I, I just, I mean, I... People ask me, you know, oh, so you know, how can I shop better, or what's the sort of the secret? And and again, there's, there's these foods are so diverse. You know, buying olive oil is different from buying coffee is different from buying fish. There's no sort of silver bullet. But what I do say is is buy when you buy food as close to its naturally occurring form. What I call, you know, when people say whole foods, a lot of times they mean like whole wheat or whole grain or quinoa when i say whole food i mean like a fish or a piece of fruit right the way that that comes coffee is a great example if you buy coffee beans whether you then grind them at the store or you take them home you grind them you know you're buying coffee beans they don't they're not chickpeas you know there's nothing else looks smells feels like a coffee bean you might get ripped off in terms of it, it might you might pay twice as much and they tell you it's from tanzania and it's not but the good news here is if you it's coffee and if you like it at least you're happy. But if you buy ground coffee, you suddenly have no idea what's in there. And that has a rich, rich adulteration going back hundreds of years of, of all kinds of horrible, dark-colored things being ground up. So that's like a very obvious example. But it's the same with the fish. If you learn what a red snapper looks like, And you go and you buy a red snapper. Now you can't be cheated. And you don't need any... People think like, oh, now I need to be a cook. I need all these skills. No, you go to the fish counter. You say, take that red snapper. And oh, by the way, could you fillet it for me? Now you go home with the same fillets you would have bought, but you saw the fish. And that's a very important step a lot of shoppers miss.
1: Right. Well, I cannot thank you enough for this book. It's really entertaining. It's written in a very consumer-friendly way. And you go through more topics than we certainly had time to cover. But if things like The Natural Label concerns you, as it does me, this is the book to pick up to find out what are the fakes, fakes and more fakes in the food world. We've been talking with Larry Olmsted author of Real Food, Fake Food, Why You Don't Know What You're Eating and What You Can Do About It. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan hemmel at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I want to thank my guest, Mr. Larry Olmsted, for being with me today. The website, again, is realfoodfakefood.com for more of this entertaining subject. Larry, i got to ask you one quick question. If you could go out and eat anywhere in the world, where would it be?
0: Uh, Japan.
1: All right, we'll close with that. We'll have to go to your website for more. Thank you so much.
0: You're very welcome. Thanks.